surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. Welcome to Let's Talk About It. This is your host, Taylor, and today we are going to dive into a topic we've never talked about on the podcast before, so I'm excited to open up a new conversation, and I'm also very, very excited to share the guest for today, Barzana Doctor, and I actually was introduced to her through my PhD program at Modern Sex Therapy Institute, and she came and she taught over the weekend and it was so fantastic. And, you know, again, always going into like education with an open mind, open hearts, open ears. And I thought, wow, okay, this is definitely someone I need to get on the podcast to continue this conversation and to share some of the things that I've learned um, and share the stories as well. Um, so before I share the interview, I want to tell you a little bit about our guest. Uh, she is a writer and activist and a psychotherapist. Um, she has written several books um, that I highly recommend that you check out. Her most recent one is called Seven. Um, all of the resources that are mentioned in today's episode will be listed in our episode notes, so be sure to check that out. Um, she creates poetry. So she has a poetry collection. She has a ton of um, activism within this space and, um, you know, want to encourage everyone listening as always open, you know, as always listen with an open heart, open ears, open mind, and also make sure to take care of yourself. Today's episode is going to be focused on female genital mutilation, which is a very unspoken about topic. Um, it's a topic I don't think we hear a lot about. It's a topic that can trigger a lot of discomfort, a lot of fear, a lot of pain. Um, for any survivors listening, I hope that you do take a second to care for yourself however you need to. I hope that you find support and healing through this episode. Um, and for those who are listening, I hope that you are able to learn um, about what this experience can be like, can learn a little bit about how to be an ally here and some tools for how to be an activist in this space as well. So let's talk about it. All right. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time and being open to coming and joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love to talk about these issues. Yeah. I, I, I mean, just from your presentation, um, you know, during my class with Modern Sex Therapy Institute over the weekend, I was just like, oh, wow, like this is definitely a topic that people don't hear a lot about. And when they do, I feel like it's very stigmatized and there's a lot of like misinformation. Um, so super happy to see that we were having a course on this and loved how you presented everything. Um, and one thing that uh, I actually learned from a previous presenter that I've been kind of mulling over and that I'm like, actually, I think I want to do this like on every podcast now um, 
I love the idea of starting off these interviews with kind of introducing our identities. Um, So I was wondering if you could just share a little bit of like the identities that you hold, just so that we all have an idea of how you're showing up to the space and have context to who you are as a human. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So um, I'm a 50-year-old cis woman living in Toronto. Um, My um, ethno-racial background is that I am uh, South Asian. Um, uh, my parents are originally from India, and we belong to the Dawoodi Bora community, or that was the community that I was born into. And that's a, a Shia subsect, um, very insular, small community. Mm-hmm. Um, I also identify as a queer woman. I'm a psychotherapist and um, an activist. And I'm a novelist as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've, so we're going to talk a little bit about the book Seven, but you've written several books and won a ton of different awards. Can you speak a little bit about your experience with you know, doing the work of being a writer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've been a writer my whole life, but you know, um, because I come from an immigrant background where uh, security is a really important thing, mm-hmm. I kind of um, moved away from that and um, looked for a career that would be secure. And I'm mm-hmm. glad I did. I enjoy being a psychotherapist. I think of it as really sacred work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in the mornings I write, I've been writing um, in a kind of more disciplined way for about 20 years. And I've written um, four novels that have been published. And um, I've got a couple more books on their way in the next couple of years. And I find it's a really great balance. Um, While I love being a therapist, it's nice to have a dedicated creative practice um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, and I mean dedicated in the sense that I actually kind of put, you know, a few hours each day into it. So it kind of, kind of creates a balance. I think it can be hard to be uh, constantly working with trauma. So it's nice to be, be able to have a place to put some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very disciplined. I'm trying to think of the things that I do disciplined every day and I'm struggling to name one other than like feed my cat. <laughs> glad for your cat. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think it's just, it's my personality. You know, I've always been somebody who likes a calendar. Mm -hmm. And um, initially when I started writing, I was writing in these short spurts where I could steal time. Mm -hmm. And because I started writing novels in a space of scarcity, I think now I, I pretty much stick to my writing routine now that I have more time for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you speak to that of writing out of scarcity? Yeah. So, you know, initially I had, um, you know, one of those uh, jobs at a hospital, you know, probably working 50 hours a week, feeling pretty Mm -hmm. burnt out. And so writing was, you know, during holidays, you know, in holidays, you're supposed to be resting weekends, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of here and there in the morning. And so um, it was, it was fine. A lot of people write that way because, you know, we have to, Um, but it makes for um, difficulties with immersion into the characters, into the story, if you can't be in it a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's nice to have more time and space for it today. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of work in our culture is based in, in scarcity and the way that our systems are set up creates an environment full of this feeling of scarcity and this pressure to produce um, that can be quite stressful really stressful because we do have to 
you know, make money. And, um, you know, I live in Toronto, which mm-hmm. is a very expensive city to live in. Yeah. So I'm grateful for my psychotherapy practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do as a psychotherapist? It sounds like you started mm-hmm. off maybe working in community mental health, like at a, at a in a hospital setting, um, wondering what your experience has been with being a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did start, I started actually in small agencies, moved into a hospital setting over the years. And um, I'm a person who doesn't like having a boss. Mm -hmm. And I was struggling with whether I could continue in, um, you know, fairly hierarchical, oppressive, um, you know, homophobic, racist environments. And so Mm -hmm. I moved into private practice. And it has worked so much better for me. And it also allows me to structure my day so that I can do my writing in the morning, see the clients in the afternoon, and Mm -hmm. just have more autonomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And would you say there's a specific, like, population of folks that you do work with in your private practice? Mm -hmm. So um, primarily, I would say it's a... um, it's well, it's a mix. It's definitely a mix, but I have um, racialized clients primarily, as well as queer and trans clients. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, trauma is such a common experience. Trauma used in a kind of broad sense. So I do a lot of work around that. And one of my favorite uh, forms of therapy these days is internal family systems work. I really love that, and I really love hypnosis as well. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And. I mean, I'm just wondering a little bit here how, um, you know, I think people these days, at least maybe mainstream or maybe just on on social media are talking more about, you know, decolonizing therapy and about, um, you know, breaking down the elements of white supremacy that are kind of entangled in the work of therapy and in the history of this work. Um, So I'm wondering if you do have any thoughts or anything to share around how in a, in a way maybe you decolonize your therapy practice? Mm, it's definitely a, a work in progress, right? Because I'm still yeah. learning and that's a process that's happening inside of me all the time. Yeah. Um, but so it's, it's just having an awareness that, you know, oppression um, impacts us in so many different ways. And we have to be looking out for that um, mm-hmm. in a client's story. And I think the other piece is... Um, how you use yourself in the work. Um, Mm. So, you know, understanding that there's quite a lot of power that you hold as a therapist. This is a very vulnerable emotional space for clients. So, um, you know, understanding where you might be overstepping and, you know, making corrections around that can be important Mm -hmm. too. The other thing with private practice, because we are charging people money, some people have um, extended, you know, insurance plans that cover it or cover some of it, Um, but so many people don't have access. And in Canada, our mental health system is really inadequate. Uh, Mm -hmm. Waiting lists are huge and long, and then often you end up in hospital settings that are really oppressive, so they don't work very well for people. So we have to think a lot about our fees and mm-hmm. sliding scales as well. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I think has been at the core of me being in private practice is just this really strong mission of like, it has to be affordable. Like mm-hmm. majority of people I, I see at a, on a, at a low sliding scale rate. And mm-hmm. that's, I think 
you know, on one hand, there's that saying of, you know, well, we don't get into it for the money. You know, we don't get into being a therapist for the money. But at the same time, like, well, we do spend a lot of money on our schooling. We often go into a lot of debt in order to get all the licensures and the education in order to do this work. And, you know, have to also want to. We don't want to devalue our work at the same time. It's, it is this funny tightrope yeah. I find for people of we want to value our work and our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is often mental health work, especially work that's done by women is like considered to be devalued. Right. Yeah. Um, so we, we want to value the work, but on the other hand, we don't want to be overcharging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a fine balance there. <laughs> Um, but that's also the benefit of diversifying your income, which it sounds like you've also done. All right. We're going to take a short break right here. I want to share a lovely sponsor of the podcast, a company that I love so much and I'm just so thrilled to have as a partner on this podcast. And that is Balesa. And I know we talk a lot about sex on this podcast and we also talk about porn. <laughs> we also talk about, you know, the ways in which our porn is not always comfortable, the ways in which our porn um, sometimes leaves us feeling kind of like icky and like guilty. And I'm really excited to share with y'all that Balesa has a new little section of their platform uh, called Balesa Plus, which is essentially the Netflix of porn because people want better porn and people want ethical porn. And Balesa is like, you know what? We're going to give you both. (laughs) So right now they are offering and empowering you to choose what you want to pay for porn. No catch. That's it. And Balesa is a woman-owned and woman-ran company, which I love. Uh, So the porn focuses on real, genuine connection and emphasizes female pleasure. There's no, like, these fucked up ads and no fake orgasms. Um, It is the only porn company where female performers choose who they want to have sex with for their scenes. And I just absolutely love everything Balesa does from their toys to their education and their blogs to uh, now the Netflix of porn with Balesa Plus. So just head over to balesaplus.co slash Taylor, choose what you want to pay and enjoy Balesa's porn erotica and sex education guilt-free. It's the last thing we need in our sex lives, in our sexuality, is guilt. Let's mm-mm, throw it out the window. None of that here. Melissa Plus offers 100% discreet billing. You can also pause or cancel with one click at any time. That's balesaplus.co slash Taylor. Pay what you want for the Netflix of porn and join the ethical porn movement. With that, we can now get right back to the episode. So I would love to transition a little bit here into this topic of female genital mutilation that you cover a lot and that you do a lot of work in and a lot of activism in. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about kind of how you got into the activism in this space of female genital mutilation? Mm -hmm. The activism came out of um, trying to sort out my own experience of being a victim of it. Mm -hmm. So back in 2015, um, this amazing activist named Massimo Rinaldi um, 
put out this article. It was a first person experience article. And it was the first time that I had ever, ever seen that in India, the mainstream media took up the issue. Mm-hmm. And so that article got circulated and I saw it on Facebook and I contacted her on Facebook messenger and just sort of said like, thank you so much. And I just knew I was full of feeling. I was actually probably dysregulated when I wrote that email to her. Mm-hmm. Um, But uh, she invited me um, to take part in a WhatsApp group that evolved into the organization. And so um, it was a a learning curve because I was trying to figure out my own self-care. What did this mean to me? What exactly had happened to me? Mm -hmm. What did it mean to be part of this community? And um, for the first while, I stayed very much in the background. Um, I'm the Twitter handler. I'm part of a steering committee, that kind of thing. And... um, because I'm a novelist, this, these kinds of things often, whatever my current struggle is, finds its way into the writing in some form. And I had um, experiences where I'd be sitting down with my morning cup of coffee and these fully formed fictional scenes were just arriving. Mm. And um, so as I continued to write the novel and I realized that I would need to be you know, promoting it, I would not need to start talking about it more and more. And I had to center myself in this whole issue and the story. And so I worked really hard. I did a lot of healing work. Mm. I practiced, you know, doing interviews about this so that I could feel calm talking about these issues um, and being out, being out as a survivor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering for you, it sounds like you were able to do a lot of that healing work as you were kind of stepping into uh, a, a space of activism. And I imagine that you, you said something that's really sticking out to me is you said you were full of feeling um, and imagining just how powerful that would have been for you to experience. Um, but everything in your life up until seeing that article, you know, was there healing for you before that? And if so, what did that look like? you know, there hadn't been any healing before that because this this is an issue that doesn't get talked about at all in our yeah. community and in many of the communities that practice this because it's taboo, it's trauma, it's secretive. And so um, I, it, it hadn't been something that I had ever really processed before. And so as the activism was starting, I was having the body memories, I was having the nightmares, Mm -hmm. I was having trauma sequelae, right? So then that was the moment where I was like, yeah, this really did happen to me. And the bits and pieces of the story are, are coming forward. So often, these memories are implicit and much of it was implicit, but I was starting to get these little bits and pieces um, like, you know, I think of it sometimes like a jigsaw puzzle and Mm -hmm. lots of pieces are missing um, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But some of the pieces were beginning to make sense and I was able Mm -hmm. to create a narrative around it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the healing came because of distress, um, you know, (laughs) you know, nightmares and body memories and uh, Mm -hmm. freeze responses during sex, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we get, any more into this because I super appreciate you sharing that and like there's so much more in that that I want to unpack here Uh, but I also want to make sure that listeners have kind of an idea of what it even is that we're talking about because like you said this doesn't get talked about a lot Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through a little bit of 
what female genital mutilation is. I'm going to start saying FGM for the rest of the podcast now, so I don't have to say this in the long, in the long version. Um, but of what FGM looks like, like, are there different types? How does this actually happen? Mm-hmm. So first, people need to understand it's a f- form of um, gender-based violence. It's on, a, on the whole continuum of uh, gender-based violence that, you know, contains things like rape culture and, mm-hmm. you know, body policing. So it's, it's a form of that. And then there are four different kinds. And so all across the planet, uh, the main reason that is given for this happening is to police sexuality, hmm. uh, to control sexuality. Uh, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's a myth. You can't really control a person's sexuality by yeah. uh, cutting, cutting their genitalia. But that's sort of how, it, it, how it's talked about. And the secondary reason that's given is for belongingness. So um, it can be kind of an initiatory right in a community. This sounds very similar to circumcision as well here. Just that last piece there, the belonging. There's a lot of similarities and maybe we can talk about that in a minute. So there are four kinds that range anywhere from a cut to the clitoral hood, which is what happens in my community, to cutting the clitoris, to um, removal of the external labia, to, um, uh, you know, creating like stitching, the labia together and leaving a small hole to um, other forms like um, cauterization, burning, um, uh, piercing, so on. So there's there's a full range, and I would encourage people to just go and Google the World Health Organization. They have mm-hmm. images there that they can have a look at. But people need to know there's no standardization because mm-hmm. this is a practice that's done primarily by um, amateur cutters, by female amateur cutters. It's the men in the community that make the rules usually, but it's the women who enforce them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, because it's often happening under duress, um, the child can be in fight or flight, which means that, you know, ha- uh, the cut is going to look different than if mm-hmm. someone was in freeze or fawn, mm-hmm. right? So there's no standardization, but um, there are these four categories. And um, it's thought to believe, uh, it's thought to be happening in 92 countries across the world. Until about five years ago, people were talking about it only happening in 32 countries. Mm. And the, the myth is that it primarily only happens in Africa. Yeah. But we know that, we know that it happens everywhere. So mm. everywhere except An- Antarctica. Mm. Uh, we've been hearing more and more survivors coming forward from, say, Russia, from Colombia, from um, the U.S., white Christian women in the U.S. talking about this happening to them. So... It's, it's a global phenomenon, and um, the very limited statistics that we have suggest that there's about 200 million survivors and that it happens every 10 seconds. I think those, the number is low because the, the, you know, the government, mm-hmm. governments across the world haven't been that interested in collecting statistics about yeah. gender-based violence in general, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh makes my heart feel so heavy just thinking about that every 10 seconds and probably more than that. Um, Yes, it's this unnecessary trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 
I mean, first of all, I'm wondering what's going on in, Ant- in Antarctica. Why are they? <laughs> why are they? You know, how do we uh, take on their practices here of not having this as a practice? Um, and yeah, I, I think it is important how you said. You know that there's no standardization here, and I think. Um, people do kind of have this assumption that it's like, oh, it looks this one way or, you know, that it's, it's a practice that looks very similar for everyone because I think that's also our, um, for the most part, our conception of male circumcision, which is mm-hmm. talked about more, I would say. It's, it's more uh, normalized and has sort of this like proud proudness to it that like if you're not like you're dirty and you're you know unclean and and all these other things that like could be a whole other episode um but that there is that little bit of a of a difference there um and I mean I'm wondering too here you said this in the presentation and Literally, I don't remember if my video was on or not, but I was like doing snaps. I was like, oh, yes, thank you. Name it. Um, Where you were like, this is gender-based violence. This is a gender-based practice. And it's because of a culture of patriarchy. And I was like, thank you. You named it. and you know, patriarchy is bad to children, even even male-bodied children. And yeah. so, so that's where some of the similarities to circumcision on um, babies who were, you know, assigned male at birth. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's where that's also really problematic, right? Because it's about bodily autonomy and lack of consent, and yeah. um, you know, the potential for trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean. You know, I was even kind of considering, well, yes, this is female-based, and I guess I'm wondering where this does happen, if there is fluidity in gender, if someone has a clitoris, but they aren't, uh, you know, presenting as as one would assume a woman would in in that culture, or, um, you know, if they they are working on um, transitioning, like, how would this still happen with them? Would they still be considered to receive this practice? Yes. I, don't, I don't even want to say surgery, yeah. um, but would they still, yeah. you know, become victims of this practice if they aren't necessarily falling in line with the binary of being a woman? Yeah. Well, we have a real gap in knowledge when it comes to non-binary and trans people. Mm-hmm. And we know that they um, that there have to be survivors with those identities too, um, they don't get talked about very much. And um, unfortunately, at the end, FGM movement doesn't include them, um, Mm -hmm. which is a problem. Uh, So, you know, I would, I would imagine because this mostly happens to minors, right? So it's happening to kids in my community, it happens um, around the age of seven, plus or minus a few years. Uh, So if a kid is yeah, it's young, right? Tiny, tiny. Yeah. So, you know, when a when a child is non-binary, I think they're probably just as likely to uh, fall victim to this. And mm-hmm. uh, and then they have, you know, much bigger problems to deal with <laughs> because mm-hmm. our culture doesn't, you know, yet mm-hmm. uh, support non-binary people, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so for a seven-year-old child or girl, person with a clit, um, experiencing this, you noted that it's the women who carry out this practice. Um, And I'm wondering, 
how that creates or, or how that impacts the relationships with women within the community communities where this happens. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, I like to quote um, Muna Al-Tahawi whenever I can, because she's amazing. So she talks about how women are often the foot soldiers of the patriarchy mm-hmm. in so many realms, right? Yeah. So um, this would be another one of those uh, situations where that happens. So, you know, if you think about, um, you know, in other societies where this is not practiced, there can be other forms of this, like women will often, you know, police and harm other women in so many different ways mm-hmm. in any culture, regardless of FGM, right? Yeah. Um, we, you know, we fat shame, we mm-hmm. will undercut where we can experience jealousies and strange ways, all of that. So, yeah. so think of it in that generalized way. And then in this community, um, so, what happens is our religious leader says, this is required, this is harmless, this will make your girl good. And if you believe in him, and if you, if you love him, you'll say, well, he must be telling us the correct thing. So, so think of that, you're, you're a mom or you're a grandma, and you're like, oh, I guess it's okay. But it happened to you too. You're also a victim of it. But you know, maybe you dissociated the experience or maybe you're really confused about the experience because you also get gaslit. You're told nothing really happened and don't cry and like, what's the big deal? And don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So you can be in a state of like fog yourself as you're being obedient to the religious leader and then you'll just continue the practice. So these are women who are not monsters. Um, They just don't know that it's harmful. Mm-hmm. Now I have to say that after five years of activists educating them, um, if they're denying the harm, that's another story. But the vast majority of people have never talked about it. And um, what I've heard from people who have read my book, who are from this community, they've said things like, for the first time I talked to my mom about it, to my cousins who went with me for the Kutna, first time I've even dealt with my own trauma around it. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of how it all uh, unfolds. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm wondering if you're open at all to sharing how your activism, how you're speaking out about this has impacted your relationships with the women in your life within your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my, I have a, a family that is quite diverse in the sense that there are people who are very conservative and orthodox and then mm-hmm. people who are way on the other end of things. And so it's the people who are the least observant and orthodox mm-hmm. who have been very supportive. Yeah. It's still difficult to talk um, about these issues with them uh, mm-hmm. because it's a trauma and it's a taboo. People will want to you know, change the subject. Yeah. But they'll say kind things. They'll they'll say, you know, we're proud of you. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm part of, um, you know, an activist community of, you know, feminist women who are really supportive and kind to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some ways, it's um, brought me a little closer uh, to people. Mm-hmm. And as I was learning about these issues, it sort of um, made me want to move even further away from some of the conservative Orthodox people who I didn't have a lot of com- in common with anyway mm-hmm. in my family. And those people are in denial. They're not uh, willing to listen to yeah. the information. 
Mm-hmm. And one thing I just want to add, because I am speaking about my own community, and this does happen in the context of religion, but it's not a religious practice. It's not considered to be a cultural practice um, because it is happening so universally. You know, it happens to pagans and Christians and Muslims and most religious leaders um, are are saying that this shouldn't be happening. Mm. So um, it's it's very few religious leaders who are like our religious leader. And I, I have often described them as like people who are kind of fringy religious leaders who will say mm-hmm. that it's a religious practice. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you to kind of speak about some of the myths around FGM. Um, and I think you just kind of touched on one right there and it is, I think imagined, right. That this is like in Africa and that's mm-hmm. only where it happens or like only within this really particular subset of religious uh, peoples. Right. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is where, again, I love that you're like, this isn't really a part of like any like specific culture. It's because of a culture of patriarchy. And mm-hmm. that is like world. And that's where I'm like, what's going on in Antarctica? Like, do they have some <laughs> kind of different system other than patriarchy? How are they working up there? Um, because yeah, it does seem like the, the purpose in it is to regulate and have control over women's sexuality. Yeah. Which is a threat, which is actually a threat to patriarchy. Yes. And and that's a worldwide phenomenon. Somehow Mm -hmm. people buy into the myth that sexuality is something that is a threat and needs to be controlled. Um, Something I want to mention is there are some groups out there that want to maintain this practice because they believe it's their right or it's part of their culture or they think it's part of their religion. And Mm -hmm. they will tell anyone who's outside of that culture and religion, you're not allowed to touch this. You're not allowed Mm -hmm. to touch it. You're you're being racist. And I just want to say that um, really push against that push up against that because in every community you will find the feminists who are saying the opposite. So in my community, Mm. we have a couple of activist groups and then we have this very well-funded, very um, toxic group that is pushing to maintain in air quotes, their religious right to maintain the practice. So Mm -hmm. in, in every community, you'll find some of those people who are continuing to be the foot soldiers of the patriarchy. So Mm -hmm. we do say it's a social norm. It's a social norm that can be changed. Mm -hmm. We've, we've changed all kinds of social norms, you know, to become healthier, better people. Yeah. How do you see a path towards changing this? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, is this something where folks need to be enacting laws for there to be consequences for those who practice it or for those who, um, you know, since it also sounds like, again, the primarily women who are um, doing the procedures are victims and survivors themselves, that it's like a a generational trauma. It's a um, victimized violator, right? Like they're someone who is oppressed in some way, who was also then continuing uh, in some form of suppression or harm. Um, you know, what does that like, are, do we focus on holding them accountable in some way? Yeah. Is it the, the folks who have like power who are, you know, talking about this and, and encouraging it? You know, how do you see working towards a change in 
working to eliminate or reduce these practices? Yeah. You know, in Canada, one of the things that we're really pushing our government for, and it hasn't happened yet, is a national action plan to address this. So it pulls in all of the different areas. So it's it's like legal. So it is illegal here. And in many, many countries, it is illegal. Mm-hmm. In the US, it's illegal. So you, you need the law enforcement, but it can't just be law enforcement. It needs to be teachers kind of watching out for uh, some signs. It needs to be the social workers. It needs to be mm-hmm. child protection. It needs to be within, um, and I think this is actually the most powerful, within each community. We have to have culturally appropriate ways within our each community to talk about this. So groups like mm-hmm. We Speak Out, which I'm part of, um, you know, our social media campaigns um, will will have education and information for us. You know, groups like Sayo in, in the U.S. Uh, that is also part of the Dawidibora community have these um, discussion groups before COVID. They would sit together and eat together and then, you know, raise a number of different issues, including Katna, which is what we call FGM. Mm-hmm. So um, it's through talking and sharing and opening the conversations and broaching the difficult conversations. Also, storytelling uh, is really powerful. So Sayo will help survivors and other people from the community create these three-minute vignettes, these little, sometimes they're animated videos that talk about some aspect of the experience so that others can kind of listen and learn and relate. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, one of um, one of the videos was really helpful for me to um, to kind of get some some new pennies dropping to help mm-hmm. me understand what happened to me. And you know, that's really strengthening because we, you know, we all need to know for anybody who has experienced any trauma, and that's most of us, mm-hmm. uh, we need to know that we're not alone and it wasn't our yeah. fault and uh, that there's a community out there working against it. So it's, it's got to, it's got to be um, a 360 approach, but I think primarily within the communities, people just talking to each other and normalizing the conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. It sounds like a huge, huge part of the work. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering here how, like, yes, the advocacy, let's have the difficult conversations. Um, I'm wondering how folks can work towards healing and how, um, how in that healing there is a space for pleasure. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. still May, it's masturbation month. Um, mm-hmm. And when I think about this, it's like, okay, well, masturbation looks different for everyone. Um, and majority of the content that is put out there uh, for people with clits, you know, uh, in heteronormative uh perspectives, you know, for women as a whole, um, it's all about the clit. It's all Mm -hmm. about focusing your pleasure on the clit. It's all about, um, you know, education and awareness of, you know, your internal clitoris and how that's stimulated. Um, And I wonder how, you know, folks who have experienced FGM, folks who are survivors, how maybe providers like myself or um, on their own individually, how they can go about experiencing pleasure with their genitals with this procedure being done. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I was so excited to uh, talk to your class. You know, there were over 100 people there who work in this field and we need more people in this field who are getting comfortable to work with survivors of FGM because it has been just there's such a gap there. So I was yeah. so glad about that. So the way that I presented the topic was um a lot, there's going to be a lot of similarities as to the work that you're going to do with anybody who has sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of those symptoms just know that, you know, there's a possibility of those being there. Uh, what's going to be a little bit different is um, so sometimes survivors will go to a therapist or go to a doctor. And because this is an issue that most people haven't been trained in, you get a lot of um, bad responses. So you can get pity. uh, You can just have misinformation. Um, Mm -hmm. I saw a gynecologist who was trained in type two and type three, but didn't know how to recognize type one. And it was an invalidating experience for me. I was glad that I was so involved in activism so I could like stand up to it. Um, So, so it can be a really complicated experience. So I think if there are more therapists out there who know there's all these different forms, there's all these different feelings about it. Um, It's going to be hard for people to talk about. You've got to deal with your own shock uh, Mm -hmm. because initially when people learn about this, it's pretty shocking. So sort of get that out of your system before you see your client. Um, uh, And then a lot of sex ed is also needed. So mm-hmm. um, most people who um, have uh, dealt with sexual trauma have learned some wrong messages about their bodies. Actually, everybody, everybody yeah. has learned the wrong <laughs> message about their bodies. That's why we True. all need it, right? Yep. <laughs> so, you know, the most basic thing we can talk to survivors about is, you know, get out a hand mirror, have a little look, Um, know that your genitals are just fine, know that they're really complex, Mm -hmm. know that, you know, most of the clitoris is internal Mm -hmm. and that's great. So if you've got some external damage, um, there is the hope, right? That Mm -hmm. the rest will um, provide pleasure, Mm -hmm. but also know that there could be pain. Um, Part of trauma is that pain can land in all different places and in confusing ways, (laughs) Yeah, um, yeah. Right. I love so, that when you talked about that, just of how like the nerves and from where the procedure was done, like we might think that that's where things might receive some damage, but that like, no, everything's connected in the body. Yeah, <laughs> and so it could be nerves- down the line somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Plus if, you know, if you experience sexual trauma, what what's happening there is you're basically it's a huge boundary violation, right? That tells you that your body's uh, not important. Your boundaries are not important. Your body isn't yours. You don't own it. It's, it's for other people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that can cause all sorts of things yeah. like over Kegeling, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. as a, as a bracing, you know, and then that, that creates pain. So you might not have been mm-hmm. cut, um, you know, lower down into the vaginal opening, but that's where it might hurt. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's about like, have a good look and then mm-hmm. learn about the anatomy, learn that there's so many ways to experience pleasure. Talk to a therapist who knows stuff about that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, listen to all the podcasts about sexuality like yeah. yours, you know, I'm always learning. Like there's, I, I, I have always thought that I was very sex positive. And every time I listen to a podcast, there's a moment I, where I involuntarily cringe and I'm like, what was that? Or <laughs> yeah, you're like, Oh, I felt that. <laughs> yeah. Or I don't, I, I didn't know that thing. I believe that thing, yeah. you know? So we, we have to just open up this the store that has been so shut for most of us. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a path to liberation. Yeah. But beyond that, like beyond the sexual healing and, you know, body and mind is all connected. I needed to do work around my inner child mm-hmm. and you know, helping her understand that some of the ways that she understood those moments, um, you know, cause you know, trauma survivors will find ways to take blame because yeah. that's safer than blaming their trusted elders. Right. Yeah. So being able to like talk to my inner child about, no, 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 that's not actually what happened. This is what happened. And mm-hmm. was it your fault? Uh, yeah. So, so doing, doing all forms of therapy help on all levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that I find I do a lot as a sex therapist, and I guess in some ways a sex educator, um, is reminding folks and helping expand their definition of sex, that it does not have to be genitally focused, um, that, you know, not all of your sex has to be experienced through your va- through your vagina mm-hmm. <laughs> or even mm-hmm. through your clit, that you can experience your sexuality throughout your entire body. Um, and so like you're saying, you know, yes, that takes some, some mind work as well and some body work as a whole, right? Because just because we experience trauma in one part of our body doesn't mean that other parts won't also be impacted. Um, so yeah, doing that inner child work, I could see where that would be really, really key to connecting with yourself um, as a whole and having that healing. Um, I'm I'm wondering here how you, so you do this column, which I think is so fantastic. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, this is literally like the power of activism and of sharing your story and of being able to have these conversations to, you know, on a micro level impact the communities where this is happening, which is like basically everywhere. It sounds like, um, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about this column and if there's anything specific that you do see come up over and over again that survivors are asking or struggling with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's called uh, Dear Mossy, and I've been writing it, I think, since September of 2020. And um, it's a monthly column, and it addresses sexuality and relationship issues. So some of the themes that keep coming up are about um, how do I talk about this with my partner? Mm-hmm. Um, what if I'm not feeling any sexual pleasure with my partner? How do I deal with that? Um what exactly was cut is often a question like that mm. came up twice. Um, so um, Sayo did a study and 65% of the survivors said that they weren't actually sure what exactly was cut. So that speaks to lack of sex ed, right? That you don't know. Yeah. And also sometimes there's not scarring. That's totally mm. visible. Sometimes there is, but sometimes there's not. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because when you are seven, mm-hmm. I don't know how much understanding typically 
folks have of their genitals. Um, you know, you oh, learn this, my nose, my elbow, my stomach, you know, like you and learn all these down parts. there. Yeah. There's my <laughs> private parts. Um, so yeah, that makes sense that, you know, not necessarily even knowing the anatomy at a young age, which is also why like you can never start sex ed too early with children. Um, part of sex ed is also identifying your genitals, um, mm-hmm. that, when that's not there from jump and then you experience a trauma with a procedure like this that, yeah, you might not fully understand like, well, I don't know, what is it supposed to look like or Mm -hmm. how is this supposed to function? Mm -hmm. And even if you're not a survivor of any sexual violence, you might have those questions like, Mm -hmm. you know, are, are my labia normal looking? Is my clit normal looking? What about the hood? Like, people can have a lot of shame about what their genitalia looks like anyway. Um, so that's, those are some of the questions. There was also um, an interesting question from someone who has been an out activist who was talking about how to date um, yeah. because, you know, when people are online dating, you'll get Googled. And if you have a name that is um, not so common, it'll come up as, you know, FGM advocate. And then what are all of the uh, myths that a potential date might have about you and your sexuality? And in, you know, one, one uh, woman has talked about how she gets, you know, two types of people who want to date her. Um, The people who want to like save her and offer her sexual healing with their magic penises. (laughs) We'll just, we'll just cringe there for a minute. Yeah. And um, the other ones are people who are like, I think you're going to be too much for me. Hmm. So, ooh, yeah. yeah. I'm imagining the as answers. well that, that there's probably folks who also maybe want to like fetishize that in some way. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a novelty, almost like a... Um, yeah, I don't know. I could I could see it being maybe fetishized in some way or like people having that curiosity. So they just kind of want to like engage, but like don't really care to actually engage. They just want to be able to say that they have kind of a thing. Yes. I could see yes. where that would maybe happen in dating too. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's, there's, there's been even questions about like vaginismus and yeah. So we've had a lot of questions. So people can just go to uh, dot com and look for the Dear Mossy column. And there's, mm-hmm. there's a bunch up there. Yeah. And um, the last one I worked on uh, was about shame and how, how do I deal with the shame that has just kind of infused every aspect of my life? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, again, no easy answers, but we can have the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I love that that you do that column. I think that's like so powerful. Um, and everything you shared in in the presentation over the weekend was super powerful powerful as well. I loved how you kind of were like, these were the things that were like helpful in my therapy experience. And these, these were the things that were not so helpful. Um, and one of the things that was like not so helpful that you did touch on a little bit earlier, um, but that I think is extra important to kind of note here is, you know, folks meaning well and trying to empathize and show support, but while at the same time kind of 
demonizing and vilifying the folks in the community and the practice itself as monstrous or as barbaric and using this type of language um, that's actually like very harmful and high key racist. Um, So I was wondering if you could speak um, a little bit to that piece as well. Yeah. That happens a lot, you know, that the media, and I think it's just that everyone is so triggered and, you know, mm-hmm. this is this is hard stuff to talk about. So, yes, barbaric gets used, backwards gets used, monstrous. And so, you know, you're talking about my grandmother, you're talking yeah. about my auntie, you're talking about my mother, like, that's not helpful, folks, right? You're talking about the community that I love, that I'm a part of. Are we backward? Are we monstrous? No. In fact, in our own community, you know, this is a community that has very high rates of education for women um, Mm. and, you know, lots of community um, support, interdependent community support in lots of ways, kind people, Mm. um, generosity. Um, Men I've found in my community are very gentle and respectful, so you can't use those kinds of words. So it's about, you know, cultural humility, mm-hmm. asking questions. Sometimes I've heard people say, oh, I've heard that story f- for sure. The, you know, Muslim men are horrible. And I'm like, you're talking about my brother. You're talking about my dad and my grand. Like, what the hell? Right. So yeah. it's not helpful. So um, and it it's much more complicated than that as we've been talking about. So Mm -hmm. instead, you know, you want to ask questions like, um, you know, tell me what this means for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you talked to other people about it? How do you feel about it? Uh, Where have you experienced uh, negative impacts? How do you feel about your community today? Are you still connected? You know, just just being very mm-hmm. exploratory, I think, and realizing that every community has its crap, mm-hmm. right? So tune into your own community's crap, and how would you want an outsider to talk about your community? Mm-hmm. You'd want them to understand nuance. Yeah. Nuance is that's key and not a lot of people want to go there um and and I think too as you're saying as we have talked about like yes it does happen within these individual communities but this isn't just a you know practice in India this isn't just a practice that happens in Africa like this is a practice that happens all over um when I posted about kind of covering this topic someone was like oh well it happens in Asia um you know it's like well I'm wondering what kind of um stereotypes or um, assumptions or perhaps underlying racism that's at play in that kind of storyline being told, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is it is a lot to unpack. Um, and one area I want to kind of leave us off on, uh, because I remember from the end of your presentation, kind of noting that oftentimes when you do talk about this, there's always someone that is like the, well, but what about men? And I know we've talked about circumcision a little bit, um, just kind of like similarities and, you know, differences. Um, but I think the way in which men get brought into this conversation of FGM is often to deflect from the actual issue and to kind of have like a oppression Olympics of like, well, but what about these people? And in a way is also just reinforcing patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I just want to say bottom line, I think that circumcision on male babies is wrong and um, a human rights violation and harmful. And um, I also want to say that there are some people within that movement that will troll FGM activists. We'll post an article about FGM and they'll be like, if you're not talking about MGM too, then, you know, you're doing nothing or like they're, they're just really yucky. And some will even say, unless you address us, you'll never change FGM. And I don't think that's true. I think that in every community, you have to have a specific approach. So, Mm -hmm. you know, culturally in some communities, we are many years away from being able to really um, change hearts and minds about male circumcision, but we are getting so much closer to address Mm -hmm. FGM. So it can go, um, you know, in that opposite direction, but I do see, you know, FGM, uh, male circumcision or MGM and um, the unconsensual surgeries that happen to intersex folks as well. Mm -hmm. I I do see it all kind of in the same category of Mm -hmm. body policing. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. human rights issue through and through of mutilation to someone's body without their consent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a lot. Um, I'm wondering how, you know, maybe to kind of leave us off here, um, what what care looks like for you as you do talk about these topics, you know, given that you're not only kind of a, um, a professional expert in some ways and an activist, but also survivor of what it is like for you to have these conversations to talk about this and, and what your, what your care looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question, you know, because what often happens to a lot of activists is that they burn out pretty quickly because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, this is not like an easy subject to talk about. And, yeah. um, you know, some part of you, the, the victim part of you is going to be a little activated each time you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where doing your own emotional healing work uh, can take you pretty far if you want to sustain yourself in this work. So yeah. I, you know, I've, uh, what I found actually, as soon as I hit perimenopause about eight years ago, I found that my self-care, um, my, my self-care game really increased in general uh, mm-hmm. because there was something that was happening to my body that I didn't understand. And I just, I had no choice anymore. So I, I take it very seriously and it's very embedded into my life. It's not perfect, of course, and it's mm-hmm. always a work in progress, yeah. but um, I, I do think of self-care as like so important in this. So, you know, one of the things I've paid a lot of attention to is um, understanding the stress response cycle, mm-hmm. uh, which is beautiful work that has been done by um, Emily and Amelia Nagoski and lots of other mm-hmm. people have talked about it, but they've sort of popularized it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, after this um, discussion, I will probably get up and I will dance or something. Like you have to shake it out of your body, right? Mm -hmm. Peter Levine's work talks about that, how we just get stuck. Our stress gets stuck and we don't need it to be. So that's been one of my big uh, self-care moves um, Mm -hmm. this last year when I've been doing a lot of talking about FGM. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. That's a big that's a big one for me in general is dancing and like I need to move my body and I need to sing. I need to like vocally express it, yeah. you know, get in touch with my chakras. Um when yes. I'm like talking yes. about all of this stuff, you know, and that's coming through this passageway. Like I need to vocally express things um through song, you know, and, and through music, um, to really shake some of that energy and that intensity off. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have, we have to do it through the body because the body doesn't know that um, we're no longer stressed yeah. or, you know, that whatever the thing is that bugged us is finished. The, the body does. And the body can't tell the difference between um, having an argument with somebody or talking mm-hmm. about a difficult issue and being, you know, chased by a lion. Yeah. The body doesn't know. So we have to help the body come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been so amazing. I so appreciate your space, your time, your energy, your knowledge, your experiences. Um, I know we've mentioned a few times some of the work that you do, but I um, was wondering if you could share a little bit about where people can find you, how they can you know, follow some of your work, where they can purchase your books, um, all of the information things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter and, and Instagram at Farzana Doctor. And probably, you know, from there, you'll find everything in my bio that's Mm -hmm. there. Um, My book is available in North America only right now. We're working on international rights. Mm -hmm. It's available in audio book as well as ebook and book book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not supposed to say that, but that's what I think, book book. Um, And um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty findable. So yeah, reach out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for all of this today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for making it all the way through and keeping your ears, your hearts, and your minds open. It would mean so much to me if you could take a second or two after listening to this episode to leave a review on iTunes and let me know what you're enjoying about the show. I love reading you know, what your favorite episodes are, where you guys listen, um, and definitely feel free to share this with a friend. I mean, part of how we break down the stigmas around these topics is by talking about them, right? And, and sharing them with more people. So definitely share the podcast. Um, and again, really wanting to include all of you in this podcast. So if you have questions or you want to share a thought or an experience, please send in a voice memo to ask.letstalkaboutit at gmail.com. And I'm really excited to keep having these conversations and uh, breaking down these stigmas. So thank you all so, so, so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll talk to you next time. Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.